Welcome to Decoding Digital Content Marketing. The IAB essay podcast that encourages and develops content marketing in South Africa as a unique, independent discipline and an effective tool for brands to communicate with their audiences. In this episode, we are looking at unlocking the key to great digital content marketing, the audience. My name is Arnel de Grief, and I'm the co-founder and chief content officer of Two Stories, an agency that's not just about creating good content. We believe great stories can change the world. With me today are a couple of great storytellers, content marketing experts that have been around the content marketing block a few times. I thought we should just get everyone to quickly introduce themselves. Brendan, let's start with you. Hi, Brendan Cooper. Uh, my history is a uh, long history in magazines. I started out working for women's fashion magazine Elle, where I was the features writer. Um, so audience there would be obviously young, fashionable females. My next job was the polar opposite. It was uh, editor of a men's magazine called Directions, which was young males. From there, I went to Student Life magazine. And that was, again, a, a big shift for me in terms of audience focus, because that was a unisex audience um, with very different uh, interests and needs. Then I ended up editor of FHM magazine and editorial director of Heat magazine at the same time. So that, again, like really vastly different audiences. And I think that my time in magazines gave me a, a very good appreciation of how important it is to understand your audiences. I subsequently moved into content marketing, joining New Media Publishing about 10, 11 years ago. Um, and they started working um, specifically in content marketing for some big brands, Vodacom, FNB, Sunlum, et cetera. Yeah, and now found myself at King James and working across a variety of client sectors from retail to mining, internal communications, content marketing. That's kind of me in a short nutshell. Cool. Thanks. Shane? Great. So, yeah, uh, my name is Shane Munyan. I am an agency brat, so I've been working in agencies my entire career. I started out studying copywriting, so writing for various audiences, mainly in the alcohol industry, and then uh, moved into strategy and I did my honors in strategy. And, yeah, in my career, I've started out as a social media manager, so working with lots of communities um, and audiences in the digital space predominantly, moved into becoming a digital strategist, I moved around publicist group for a while, so working with Popeye Media, Arc, Digitas Licorice. Recently, I was most recently at Joe Public United, and now I find myself as a strategy director at VML YNR. So, yeah, I've worked with over 60 big brands in my time over almost every single industry, FMCG, financial, tobacco, beverages, uh, you name it, I've worked on it. So, yeah, segmentation plays a really, really big role in uh, my day-to-day -day job, and I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Justine? Hi. Thanks, Anelda. I'm Justine Drake. I am content director of John Brown Media. And I've been serving audiences one way or another for many, many moons. Also, like Brendan, starting in the print arena with magazines as an editor, but also working on trends for big brands, working as a stylist, writing books. So my audience over the last sort of 30 years or so has continually changed, and hopefully I've changed sufficiently with it. 
now I, I work still with big supermarket brand Pick and Pay, um, but I also work with, with sort of blue chip clients in banking, uh, in investment, in health. So very broad audience base, which hopefully is going to keep me young. <laughs> Great. So in previous episodes of this podcast, we unpacked the definition of digital content marketing, but I want to start today's conversation there again and on two specific elements of the definition. The first is that digital content marketing is aimed at defined audiences with the aim to add value to their lives at specific points in their user journey. The second is around the fact that with digital content marketing, the aim is to build and engage these loyal audiences in order to increase their commercial value to the brand. So let's start with the first element first, a defined audiences. And this is a question to all of you. How do we define audiences these days? So I think, you know, a target audience, there's so many different ways to define it. And it's really based on common characteristics um, that are in line with, you know, potentially what the brand requires. I generally like to look at demographics and behaviors. So things like gender, age, location, purchasing power, profession, income, uh, even like relationship status can all play a role in kind of defining your target audience. And really the objective with defining your target audience is to make sure that you deliver the right message, the right person at the right time. And um, for us, it's about making that communication really meaningful. I think you have to always start with the data and we are privileged in the contemporary world of being able to access so much customer data and have so much data available to us. I am sometimes quite surprised by how little that is used. And I think it is a very important step. But another step that I find really works when, if you are an agency taking on a new brand and you're trying to understand that target market is to speak to the clients and speak to the people within the business because they very often know a hell of a lot about their audiences. And having those conversations with them and sort of downloading their anecdotal and their, their sort of their emotional um, feelings about their target market is, is important. But for me, I'm a big believer in creating consumer personas. I think that they can be hugely valuable. And I think it's time really well spent, particularly at the beginning of any content or digital content marketing journey, is to really break down consumers into, into different personas and really personify them, give them names give them characteristics, identify what their media habits are, what device they use, get as granular as you can, and then back it up by research. So I think, well, I think those two things have to happen simultaneously. There needs to be research, and that research needs to help you formulate those customer personas. And from there, you, rather, and I've seen this all too often, is that work is done, and then it's just filed. It's put away on a PowerPoint somewhere and never referred back to. But I think it's really important that you keep those customer segments top of mind every day while you're creating content. And the, the one example I can give that that is, is slightly tangential, but was is, is a very powerful one, is when they launched the Son newspaper, if you guys remember that sort of nasty kind of rag of a, of a magazine, but it was phenomenally successful. And what the editor of the publication did was they had a, a mannequin, like a, a guy, dressed in, in workers' overalls with a miner's hat on, who they'd given a name and who was stood in the editorial office every day to remind them of, okay, this is who our readership is. Um, and that kind of really real 
in-depth personification of the people that you're talking to can really help you inform your decisions on a day-to-day basis around the content that you're generating Mm -hmm. for the audiences. Wow, that's a brilliant example. Justine, I know at John Brown, you're, you're also very fond of building these customer personas. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I do think the customer persona building is important because it sort of ensures that not only the team working on the brand and finding the audience, but also the brand's team, that you all are seeing the same persona because sometimes a persona in one person's mind is another in another person's mind. So it does help to really unpack them and bring them to life. I mean, I love the the mine a moment. But I think, you know, once you've got the data and you can build out the persona, the, the vastly underrated scenario about how you define an audience is using EQ. Just sometimes gut instinct is much more important than any piece of data will ever be. Actually, hanging out with those people, if you know, for me it's relatively easy because a lot of it's supermarkets and things, and actually not imagining what you think they are or what you want them to be, but really who they are. I think that's one thing that that we must really give a lot of importance to is the sort of gut instinct EQ thing. But I think more and more with the pandemic and people sort of splitting off so much more, that whole local community, things are less homogenous, more, less generic. You know, there's a whole lot of subcultures that have evolved. And we haven't got that data yet. We don't really know because they're changing so much. They're changing kind of with the pandemic and levels changing in different countries and closed and open. So there's a whole emerging audience that is not really being defined at the moment. So I think it's making it more interesting than ever before, but it is a time where you have to be more fluid and more agile than ever before to kind of really get to grips with all these audiences that are suddenly appearing on our back door. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, Justine. I think that what you're kind of talking about there is, is that these consumer personas can evolve. It's not, they aren't set in stone. And obviously with a massive disruption that the world has undergone, that they need to be constantly reviewed and, and what, what data you do have accessible needs to be filtered in and those, and those personas refined, um, looking at, at, at shopping habits. So for example, the, the, the huge increase in online shopping, those are all things that you need to, to factor in and keep those personas fresh, making sure that, you, that you're using the latest data Brendan, I want to stay with you and just, I know that at Cedar you do a lot of work in the internal comms space. Maybe you can just talk to us about that. What if the audience is your employees and the fact that you're talking to a group of people with one very specific and massive mutual interest, does it make it any easier? How, how, do, you, how do you navigate that? I think the answer to that is yes and no. So obviously it makes it easier because there is everybody has an interest in the success of the company and the company's ways of working, their policies, what benefits are available to employees, etc. So when you're talking to a, a, a group of staff from a particular organization, there is a common goal and there's, and there's common interest. However, in, it, you, it depends on the organization. So it depends on the organizational culture. Some cultures are, are, are very unified. And it also depends on the, how broad the audience is within the, the company. So, for example, I worked on the internal communications for F&B for a long time. And that's a very easily defined audience. It's like these are people who work for a bank. They are a certain LSM. They all have smartphones and access to information. But one of my other clients at the same time was Coca-Cola Beverages South Africa, where we were talking to everybody from the CEO and the top-level execs down to people who were literally working on factory floors bottling Coca-Cola. 
So there it becomes a little bit tricky because you've got these very different, this very, very broad audience. Everybody is united in, behind the success of the company, but everybody's needs are very different. So for an example I like to use is every company has a, a, a green or environmental policy, right? But that means very different things dependent on where you, where you work in organization. So if you work in procurement, it's about making sure that your supply chain is green. But if you are an office manager, um, it may be that your take on, on the environment is, is managing the amount of paper that gets consumed. On the factory floor, they're very different concerns and very different realities. So it, it gets trickier the bigger the organization, and it gets trickier the more diverse the access to, to technology and information is. But generally speaking, we do see internal communications content outperform consumer-related content. So open rates of emails are higher. Uh, engagement with content is higher. And I think that is the, the, the hunger for information about the company that you work in kicking in there. But it can be so vastly different. I've literally launched internal comms platforms for clients where we've had an 80% user adoption rate within the first three months and others where we've launched exactly the same technology that's had a 20% use adoption rate. So it's quite difficult to quantify why there is that vast difference. I think a lot of it for me has to do with culture. Um, and some companies, there is a culture of engagement, there's a culture of inclusivity, there's a culture of curiosity, and in other organizations that just doesn't pervade. And, and those organizations have more disengaged employees, and that's obviously a big risk to, to any organization. Great. I want to, for a moment, just think about the sweet spot between what the audience wants and needs and what the brand is offering. It's at this sweet spot that often the content marketing opportunity lies. Um, Shanae, I just want to go back to you again. And Do you think that sometimes a brand is clear about its offering and the content it wants to do, but then just needs to find an audience for it? Or... Or is it the other way around? There's an audience, but they identify the content for it. Talk to us about that sweet spot. <laughs> um, that's an age-old question that has been asked, and it's, it's really about should you be brand-centric or should you be consumer-centric? In my opinion, brand-centric marketing is really, really old school, really traditional. It's become a bit of a tone-deaf approach because it basically just tells the consumer what the brand wants them to know. Um, and it's an outbound marketing mindset. And it, and it really was more for mass communications on radio, TV, newspaper, um, and print. But now we're seeing a massive shift towards customer-centric marketing. Um, and it's really about having your finger on the pulse of customer community, um, listening to what they want and delivering it. And, you know, with the dawn of search engines, SEO, consumers have really gained power of information. So when they have a need, they can proactively do their own research. And so it's not necessarily that, you know, our messages are being received from a branding perspective. Um, it's more about consumers having developed this ad blindness almost, uh, where, you know, if, if it isn't relevant to their lives, they're not going to pay attention to it. So we need to pay attention to their current needs, their pain points, and their problems. I think it's really about delivering content that customers want, and that's what's going to get their attention earlier before they have gotten to that point of making a purchase decision. 
if we can get their attention a little bit earlier through something that they're actually interested in, we can start to nurture them towards becoming a prospect or making making that buying decision. And and you know, looping back to our discussion earlier, that's why personas and mapping out buyer journeys are really useful and, and then integrating that with the use of technology to automate our interactions with customers and, and make them more personalized will ultimately help them respond to content a little bit better and, and help us get better results from our ads. So I like, there's a saying that I like to use and it's generally about, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. But when a horse wants to drink, it will find the water. And it's all about, you know, that push and pull content strategy. Um, instead of just pushing content out to your customers, create content that will pull them into your world. For me, that, that sweet spot exists where there's a value exchange, where the content that you're providing is delivering some value. Consumers aren't stupid. They know when they're being marketed to, and they are okay with being marketed to. It's part of everyday life. When you get it right is when there's an exchange of value. So the, the consumer is left going, okay, thanks. I know I was being marketed to there, but I actually got something from that that's useful. And that, and that hopefully then spurs them to some kind of positive action that, they, that is brand beneficial. So I think that we, we at King James and at CEDA really strive to put our customers right in the center. I agree exactly with what you're saying, Shawnee. If, if, if the brand team are dictating what customers want, they're getting it wrong. Put the customer in the center and really look for, through the research, through, the, through identifying their need states, really look at a way to provide them with content where the value gets exchanged. And I think you, 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 your brand love and your brand affinity grows from that. From that. And, uh, and ultimately that's, that's part of your acquisition funnel is having that moment where your consumer says, hey, you know what, thanks for that. That's, that's, that's where the sweet spot lies for me. I agree with you 100%. It's about adding value. You, they need to get something out of it. I think one of the things we can talk about in terms of adding value is one, you know, we speak about putting the audience first and not the brand, you're 100% right. But it's, we've got to find that audience. And when we know the audience, we've got to tailor the content to them, which we know. Then the content can be different. And, well, the content isn't different, but how we tell it, how we tell that story must be different. So I think the point is, it all comes down, I know this is a bit tried, and, but it is about storytelling because you can tell the same story in so many different ways as long as it's going to engage people. Do you know what I mean? You can get adult nursery, right, nursery story and you can get a kid's one and they're the same sort of story with the same moral, but um, they're just told differently. So I think like CNN, so, so you don't know anything about Bangladesh, you don't really care about Bangladesh, and you weren't really going to watch it, but there she is, Christine Amapur is on the ground, weeping with a family, and suddenly it's come to life, and suddenly you're engaged. You've got to make an audience care about something they didn't know they thought they cared about. You know what I mean? Because a lot of this they don't really care about, do they? It's only when you make it interesting enough or relevant enough. The other thing about that sweet spot more and more now is that people really need to see bits of themselves in that sweet spot. You know, it's, there is really that sort of, yeah, that mirroring where you see yourself and it's, and it's speaking to you, not just in a homogenous idea. And as we demand more of that personalization, so we're sort of targeting our audiences and the funnel is getting sort of narrower so that, so that there's not a lot of bump and crap just sort of sprouted out a sort of pay and spray approach but more of a a focused intentional conversation 
I absolutely agree. I think it's also quite interesting if you think about how we as content marketers and as agencies need to help our clients stay true to that. Because I think so often they want to default back to like shouting out messages and pushing it down the throats of their consumers and, and not taking into account that value-adding transaction. How, how do we help our clients remember that? Be brave. <laughs> Be brave. I think, you know, when, when content marketing sort of really started to become part of the narrative and part of everybody's mix, there was a lot of hesitancy from, from clients to make the change. And there was also a lot of fear from agencies to, to go, look, this is not the way it was, that you can't do it that way anymore. You've got to have some tough conversations and you've got to believe it so fundamentally and be able to prove it. If I think about when we first started Fresh Living magazine, God, 14 years ago or something for pick and pay, the HODs and the buyers and things could not understand and were enormously peeved that they couldn't just tell me what to put in the magazine and I want you to write about this and this is what it is and we're paying for it. This is our sort of mouthpiece. And I was like, well, then you must just, you must then we don't want to do it because we're not a leaflet. So they were tough conversations and I was not very popular. And I did then have amazing backing from their marketing team. But, you know, push back, be brave. So one of the things that I think is really helpful when you're having difficult client conversations is to have early on in the early engagements and in the when you're setting up your strategic framework is to have content pillars that are locked down and decided on. So you look at your audiences, you create your 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 CVP, you look at you create your your personas, but then a very important step is is narrowing down a couple of content pillars that you know are going to serve you, all of your market. And I'll, I'll use a magazine example here again. At, at FHM, our content pillars were sexy, funny, useful, relevant. What we tried to do is make every piece of content all of those things. But as a rule, if it wasn't at least three of those things, then it had no place in the magazine. So that, that made decisions easy. We would, we would look at it and go, is this funny? Is this useful? Is this relevant? Yes. Okay. It goes in the magazine. And I think a similar logic can be applied to brands. If you set up your content pillars up front, and somebody from brand comes and says, we want you to talk about our socks day and tell that that we had internally and tell that to all of our consumers. You go, hang on, guys, is this does this tie to those original brand pillars that we all agreed on? And if not, you've got a really strong argument to push back and say it doesn't belong in your content stream. Absolutely. I think content pillars are an exceptionally strong um, way to guide your communications. And I think you know, what I like to do, it's, it's all about looking at um, establishing some sort of unique and meaningful value exchange between that brand and the community. Um, and there are just so many strategic frameworks and models that you can look for to kind of get to that um, unique space that your brand can own in the mind of the consumer. But the one that I use uh, quite frequently is just trying to understand the context surrounding the brand, um, I look at the five C's. So it's looking at your category, understanding what other macroeconomic pressures that are that your brand is operating in and that your consumer is operating in. Um, look at your competitors. What are they doing to distinguish themselves? And, and try and find a gap that really differentiates yourselves amongst your competitors because at the end of the day, the last thing you want is your consumer to be looking at a sea of sameness. It makes it a lot less likely for them to choose you. 
Then obviously we've spoken at length about, you know, your consumer motivations, their pain points, all of that. But beyond that, I think um, what can make it really unique is just to look at the culture surrounding um, your consumer. Um, and all these little subcultures really can start to provide um, rich insights into behaviors that that you can tap into as a brand um, and start to, you know, develop a little bit of a closer relationship with your customer. And then lastly, it's looking at your company as a whole. And is that meeting its promise? Um, does it need to be refreshed? Do we need to reposition for modern times? And I think analyzing all these areas allows you to position the brand to occupy that unique space in, in the consumer's mind. So yeah, just a just a framework for everyone to use. Uh, I find it exceptionally useful. Yep, I use something similar. <laughs> so suppose you're clear about your audience and what you want to offer them in terms of content and how you're operating in that sweet spot and they're engaged. How do you sustain it? How do you make sure that you stay on your strategy? I think this is where data really does help. And is it working? Keep looking at it. Tailor make it, retarget, readdress. And I think someone was saying earlier, you know, just keep moving with your audience. So I think you can only be interesting if you if you remain relevant. And as the audience is changing all the time, relevancy changes all the time as well. So I think that's probably one of the first first things you need to do is use your data, monitor, retarget, and just keep remembering that you've got to give them what they want, you know. I think there is also that uh, my eyes glaze over element where you think it's working, client likes it, so you just keep serving the same shite over and over because, like, everybody's happy. I mean, why why mess with success? And I think that's a trap that a lot of people fall into, you know, because, I mean, we're busy and just it's working, so we, you know, we'll live. But I think it's really important to reassess regularly, bring in new voices. I think we also, we, we have our trusted suppliers or our trusted writers or our trusted whatever it is, and, and it's, it, it really works well, but actually new voices that represent the morphing market is, is something that we, we've got to try and find more and, and work on more. I think relevancy is, is kind of the only way you're going to stay engaged, isn't it? Um, being sort of at the center of their story. And again, I think one of the biggest ways to stay relevant th- th- these days is to really work on that sort of co-creation idea where there is an engagement that's literally from your audience, some kind of UGC sort of scenario or polls or uh, narratives where they can be seen and heard. I don't think there's magic or I think there's lots of listening and lots of staying relevant to continue to engage. I think one of the things that you also have to do is really keep refreshing your tactics So as an example, we all know that video over the last three or four years has become everything and most consumed form of of media on the internet and brands have gone there. It's taken some brands quite a while, but generally (laughs) speaking, brands have understood the value of video. But I'm really fascinated and excited by interactive video, which we're now starting to see some brands adopt, where you are within the video, people can choose the thread they'd like to follow. So the video may offer you the ability to click on the, the chicken recipe or the soup recipe or the or the something else recipe and and you can tailor make your own experience of the content um that for me is is, is a, a a really powerful opportunity and a, and embracing those new technological advancements within our content streams and trialing them and seeing if they work um, mm. and updating your tactics constantly 
Um, and we started to play with, there's a, there's a platform called Wirewax that facilitates interactive video. Um, our partners in CDA in the UK have been used it, and it's been phenomenally effective. Like the, the completion rates on videos, the open rates on, on interactive videos are sky high. And that was just them seeing the opportunity and, and persuading the client to give it a bash. And now from, from here on, pretty much all the videos that they're making, for, and this was for their client Tesco, um, are interactive videos. Um, so staying on top of what the technology is allowing you to do in your content stream and using those tactics effectively is really important. I think what's important about what you're saying, Vaden, I completely agree, is that the technology is being developed from a need, and the need now is for audiences to be seen and heard and to co-create. And it's, it's amazing that the tech can be so agile and adaptive and watch the change in a market and in an audience and build a platform that gives them what they want. You know what I mean, it's, it really is all, it's all become a bit of a sweet spot, isn't it? We're all enabling each other to, uh, yeah, because years ago this obviously could never have happened and audiences never had a voice. They never really even expected to be allowed to have a voice. They were just served stuff and passively took it. But now it's all about actually putting your, your voice into the narrative itself and, and being part of that story. It's pretty cool, really. Absolutely. I think like, and then also sometimes the technologies exist. It's not necessarily new technology, but just different ways of thinking about it. Mm. So one of the pieces of the content types that we've been using effectively for one of our retail clients is decision trees. So very old school. So for example, you're shopping for a lawnmower. So rather than have a long article that tells you about 10 different types of lawnmowers, you're presented with a first decision. The first decision is how big is your yard? So you go, it's very big, it's medium or it's small. That, that then segments the, the, which products you will ultimately be served, right? Then, then it asks you electric or petrol, and you go, I'm definitely a petrol person. So you click it. That then segments the basket even smaller. And then you can continue to ask those questions, which, which get you to a point where what you are going to suggest as your product bundle that, that is then directly shoppable has become hyper relevant to that consumer because they've mm. given you inputs along the mm. way. And, and that also takes what would have been possibly an 800 word article with, with a whole bunch of pictures of different lawnmowers to an experience where you've got a curated set of three that are appropriate to your need. And I think that kind of, of use of, of the back-end technology to get more understanding of what the consumer is actually after is seriously mm. going to increase, yeah. increase your, your shoppability and your, and your decision to purchase. Because then the consumer is part of the journey. They have a say. I mean, I think people want to be heard. You know what I mean? One, it makes it more entertaining to be mm. pushing a button and going, yes, no, yes, no. But two, it makes you feel like important in the journey. It gamifies the process too. And yeah, I mean, it's like That's a little fun. hit of dopamine yeah. instead of getting lost in a listicle. We all talk about the importance of engagement. If you've got somebody clicking on your content five, six times, I mean, that's, that's engagement, right? That, that you know is somebody who is, who is interacting with your content in a meaningful way, I think for, is possibly even more meaningful than vanity metrics like likes. Mm -hmm. Just to build on that, I think with the exchange of data, so with getting consumers to interact and ask for us to learn a little bit more about them, they are becoming a little bit more reluctant to share data with us. And, and for that reason, we do need to be careful with how much data we collect from them and the way in which we collect it and ensure that it's handled correctly with privacy policies, etc. 
But I think there's a role for agencies to play in this where we need to start adapting our service offerings to ensure that we are constantly listening to that social data of our customers, um, not just asking them to engage and give it to us, but that we are monitoring it. And I've done quite a bit of work with Joe Public, um, we, you know, we developed a new offering called Joe Pulse, which is a newsroom that essentially keeps us up to date with all our clients, audiences, um, the trends, the conversations, the cultural nuances. And then looking at evolving your creative team as well. So gone are the days where you have just a copywriter and an art director in a room together coming up with a concept. You know, it's important to start having your analyst in the room, your social media manager in the room, people who are close to your communities that can provide those insights that start to translate through the work. So I think it's not just in content that we need to adapt. It's also from an agency model and a service offering that, that we need to look at. Absolutely. I think it's so old school to just lock up the art director and the copywriter in a room and make them come up with all the plans. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's also not very good in terms of social distancing, but anyway. <laughs> I wanted to just flip this on its head, and we've been talking about the sweet spot for a long time. Let's talk about blind spots, because I think we often know about all the right things we need to do. What about the things that we don't know? the things that are hidden to us that we're not doing right or should be thinking about? I think our biggest blind spot as content marketers is that we think that audiences need more content. I think there are a variety of pressures. As an agency, you're looking to always grow the work that you do for the client because you're growing your billing. So the, the idea would be like, okay, cool, let's make them more content. Clients always want more content because they've got pressure from all of their internal stakeholders who somebody wants their category promoted, somebody else wants their category promoted. So there's, 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 there's pressure coming at you from all sides to create more content. And there's a, a quote that I love by the CEO of Cedar UK, Claire Broadbent, that says, brands don't need more content, they need smarter content. Brand needs to, brands need to turn their owned media into powerful customer conversations. And that really resonates with me. It's not about pushing out more. It's actually about pairing back and pushing out more with relevance. And also, I think we've all suffered from the sort of factory farm syndrome where we are just pushing so much content out that the quality starts to, to drop off. Mm. Um, and I've, I've, I've noticed that particularly during the pandemic, brands are throwing stuff out there because the, the objective is, is share of mind, share of voice. But the quality then suffers. And ultimately, that's going to do your, your brand more harm. More content can, can equal more harm, ultimately, rather than better engagement and better results. Totally. Like, how do you do a standing ovation on a podcast? It's like, <laughs> I just feel it. People are overdoing it. And, and it is that thing about restraint. I think it's also about brand permission. As a brand, you have permission to talk about certain things, but, but others not. And my, my favorite example of that is on the day that David Bowie died, which was an emotional moment for me and a lot of people that I know, <laughs> and for a lot of people globally, Crocs, Crocs guys, put out a post on, on Twitter saying, RIP David Bowie. And they obviously got slaughtered on social media because David Bowie would never have been seen dead wearing a pair of Crocs. So that kind of the decision making there was like seriously faulty but if you if you just broaden that out a bit there are some things that your brand has permission to talk about if you are an, an electronics company you can talk with great authority and with with thought leadership voice about your area of expertise but don't jump onto a trending conversation that's well outside of your brand permission 
and, and, and start talking about it just because everybody else is. I think brands get themselves into real trouble when they do that. Let's just take a quick step back and confirm why the audience is important to the brand. What do they gain from being clear about who they are and what they need? As a marketer, we have to make so many decisions on behalf of the brand. We have to decide what the brand's going to say, how they're going to say it, um, and even where that message should live. And that's really where the importance comes in of understanding our target market. It really informs our decision making around the customer experience, the brand experience, and making sure that the messages are relevant and authentic to people's lives, as well as making sure that the channels we choose is where we are meeting them as opposed to assuming that they are already there. Um, and I think with the rise of digital particularly, um, we've done away with one-way interaction. So we have this opportunity to re-engage the customer, collect data and encourage repeat purchases and loyalty. Um, and that's why that customer experience plays such a critical role in increasing customer lifetime value. And I think before data, we could never talk about customer lifetime value. And it, and it's such an incredible metric to look at. You know, I've, I've got some brands in the retail space who are actually looking at, um, you know, the purchase power of their existing customers, who, how big their basket size is, um, who's purchasing when and, and how they're purchasing and what frequency. And I think that kind of information is really valuable because we can start to increase their lifetime value with the brand and obviously increase their loyalty and advocacy and, and use that advocacy to pull new users into that customer journey. So, for me, it's about taking that audience segmentation a little bit of a step further. And from my perspective, how I like to approach it is through a couple of layers uh, of segmentation that make sure that the full journey, customer journey is frictionless. So, you know, there's nothing worse than getting a call from your bank trying to sell you a credit card that you already have, right? And, and that's the role of data is knowing your customers so well that we know what products you have, what products you don't have, and what is, what's going to be most relevant to your life. So, from an upper funnel perspective, I definitely look at personas, psychographics, demographics, and that just helps me understand as a hypothesis, what is the pain point? What are the motivators? But then, you know, I like to take it a step down. Most brands go for, you know, one or two um, segments that they're going after. But because there are so many subcultures that have formed and creatives hate me for this, I develop, you know, anywhere between eight to 12 personas. And, and if we've got, you know, automated tech involved, it can be uh, up to a thousand segments that we develop and create personalized creative for. So the possibilities are really limitless from that upper funnel perspective. But then at a second layer, I like to look at how we can grow their existing customer base. Uh, and that's using their first party data, whatever data they've collected about their customers. Um, we make use of that in our targeting, creating custom audiences that, you know, we can engage them on a more personal level. And then lastly, there's that data-driven layer of interaction and action that informs messages that really nudge you towards taking that end action or that end goal. So whether it's because we want you to buy our product or watch our video or subscribe to our email newsletter, we are essentially taking you step by step through that journey. We're not asking you to do too much all at once. 
Thank you, everyone. I think we've had a wonderful discussion, certainly lots of food for thought. So thank you so much for your time and your insight. Thanks, Anelda. Let's just hope the audience listening to this is getting what they want. You've been listening to the IAB SA podcast, Decoding Digital Content Marketing. Another solid gold production.